Welcome to the Yeshiva Shalmaila. This is David Lichtenstein. This week is Parshas Mishpatim. It's the end of Shavavim. So we're going to be speaking about Shmiras Enayim, something that's not really spoken about much. We'll be speaking about how do we address this issue with our youth. It's very sensitive. Most people are embarrassed to talk about it. How to prevent it from becoming an issue. What percent of from Yidin are struggling? Is it five? Is it ten? You'll be surprised. What should people who are struggling do? Is it unique to our generation? We're going to have the founders of Guard Your Eyes Foundation, which has haskamis from all the G'dayle Adair. The three founders are tzaddikim. They gave up their jobs to this. We're going to have Dr. Shlomi Zimmerman, a renowned psychologist. He's the author From Boys to Men, which has haskamis, again, from Rabbi Feldman from Baltimore, Rabbi Lubrudny, etc., etc. And afterwards, we're going to have Rabbi Mendel Kessin, a renowned lecturer, a world expert on the Ramchal, he's going to be speaking about, from a more Kabbalistic point of view, Shmir Senayim. What precipitated this program? A number of weeks ago on, we had Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg on, and during the interview, he said that um, 70%, he said he heard from a mashpia or from somebody, I think he said that 70% of the boys today are nichshal in pornography. So we had a very angry call and leave this message. Imamish said about horror about you said seven percent of Bakram watch pornography. You have no way there's no way of proving that, so it's past the checker. And you have no right to say such a thing. It's totally disgusting. Mamish that's really why I believe you're a snake. You are a snake. You're not a katmaini who says such horrible things, awful, awful things about about Bakram. To go ahead and say say that a majority of Bakram let's say in the in the Samwood, to the Lakewood or Long Beach or Staten Island are watching porn. It's so horrible to say such a thing. It's mamish bad. You said Lashahara, probably with the Shemra, Shemra with the Shemra, and Bachram, any Bentaira. So, what does this younger man, Rabin Yamin, say? It's a chutzpah to denigrate the yeshivas. So, here's what Guard Your Eye said during our interview today. Rabhaim Ross, a big dine in Lakewood, he told us that one of the big chutzpah teachers in Lakewood told him. That 70% of the boys that come to, to him for Adracha before their wedding have already had their views warped by exposure to pornography and they have unhealthy expectations. So it's really an astounding number. And if you or you know somebody who struggled with this problem, it's worth listening to today's program. Or if you're a parent and you want to speak to your children about it and you want to know how to do the, talk about this very taboo sensitive topic in a mature way that gets through to your child, listen to the interview with Dr. Zimmerman. Now, a number of months ago, during one of our programs, we spoke about Kaddish, a woman saying Kaddish in Shul. And what precipitated that? We had, um, in, in the Balshemtiv Shul, or Davin, there were, there was a girl, her father was a sick, was in a coma for almost a decade. And he passed away, and he didn't leave a son. So she asked me if she could say Kaddish on Friday night. And uh, she she proceeded to say Kaddish, we agreed. And we had a, a call of this week screaming his head off, how do we allow Kaddish in an Orthodox synagogue? So let me give you a little bit of the background. Uh, the first person to speak about it was the Chavas Yoyer, who in a tshuva, Chavas Yoyer lived around the time of the Magen Avram. He told me like 350 years ago. And he writes in a tshuva that he heard that in Amsterdam, somebody died and he didn't have a son. 
And the daughter uh, said Kaddish, and he had a real problem with it. He said, you know, if we start changing the minhagim of Klal Yisrael, it's like Ein Ladava Saif. And he said, this appears to be something new. And he's quoted by the Tshuva Me'ahava. And Paiskim of later Dairis, the, uh, the Shvus Yankif discusses it, the Gesher Achayim. But more recently, here's a Tshuva from Rav Henkin, from Tufshin Zion. And he was asked, it's a... Greenstein, and he's asked about Kaddish, if a Nara could say Kaddish in Shul. He says, so he admits the Akhrainim discuss it. He says, and even the, even so, in other words, that many of them were opposed to it. He says, aldusi, Umra Nara Kaddish Anashim. A girl said Kaddish Anashim, shall chasidim And what does he proceed to say? He says, in the olden days, and this is the way, in the time of the Shulchan Aruch, they used to, one person would say Kaddish for the whole Tzibur. So he says it was a particularly sensitive thing for a woman to get up and say Kaddish in front of the whole Olam. But he said today that everybody says Kaddish. So he says he believes that it would be Mata. He says everybody says, She should stand on the other side of the Mechitza and say Kaddish. This is what Rav Henkin writes. And interestingly, Ramosha Feinstein in Erechayim, Cheli K. Simon Yud Beis writes, he's talking about Mechitza, and the Gavar says, he says, Kol HaDoyres, Kol HaDoyres, which is an interesting Lashen, Nogu Shalapamim, Oisenichneses Isha Aniya Lebeis HaMedrish Lekabel Staka. Even though it was a Mechitza, a woman would come collecting Staka in the Menshal. Oi Avela Loimer Kaddish. He just writes it, Agavorcha. We found in Sefer Rocha Shlibi where he brings Nogu Bekloiz Beisakneses Al Shem Hagoyin Mivolna Lefnei Hashaya that what that a, a girl would say Kaddish a Yisayma would say Kaddish V'chein he heyed echad mevesiki yeshivas mir be Brooklyn shenoyled vegadol be Vilna kashasher ben doyday nifter luloi banim pasuk or abchayim oizu grujinski right that she should be say Kaddish the Beisakneses be Vilna and chaver echad baisay minyan. You know, we need a fifth Shulchan Aruch. So here's what I would say if, if somebody asked me the Shaila. If it's somebody passes away and they leave sons, so then why do we why do we have to do something which is somewhat, you know, a shinri from the minig? But in a case where somebody passed away without sons and it's a girl, right, he just leaves a girl, and particularly in a time when it's a uh, a, a tragic or a very sad situation. So we have G'dayli Apaiskim, again, Ramosha, uh, Rav Henkin. We have from Rav Chaim Moiza, the Chafetz Chaim, where they said a girl, a girl whose father died without children could say uh, Kaddish. So I felt it's appropriate. Now, I can understand that uh, in a good dominion, they likely wouldn't do it. But, you know, I guess they're more concerned about you know, politics or about um, what people would say or how it appears. But halachically, I think that when somebody's an issue that's such raw emotion and so much hurt, I certainly see that we could be saimachar and g'dayli apayskim. Now, if somebody doesn't want to in their shul, I guess they have what to be, they certainly have what to be saimachar, chavis yoyer, etc. But if you want it, you certainly have what to be saimachar as well. And when it comes to people's feelings, especially in a situation like this, I don't see where kanoyis like, uh, comes in. You know, I, 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 I think if you want to be a kanoi, be a kanoi about kiddish clubs, etc. Not about Yisayma who wants to say Kaddish for her father, who died without sons. So clearly, there's two different opinions here. You have the Chabas Yoyer, the Gesher Chaim, 
etc., who say that a girl should not say Kaddish. And then you have the opinion of uh, old ladies, Rav Hankin, Rav Moshe, before that they say Rav Chaim Moise, and the Vilna, and the Vilna Kloyshaft from the Chavetz Chaim, that they said a Yisayma, where there's no sons, can. So there's two opinions, and you can clearly be, quote-unquote, do like those who don't allow it, or like those who do. I'm not sorry, one is a Chumra in Habas Yisrael, and one is a Chumra in the Kedushah of Minhagim. So our Shul is... So we said, here's somebody in pain who wants to do it, and we'll go like with uh, the, all these Goyenim Tzadikim who said you can. Clearly, if you're running a shul that's, you know, more focused on minig and on, you know, politically correct, etc., then those shuls clearly would not allow it, and halon v'alohu. That's, uh, so in our shul we allowed it. Before we go to our riddles of the week, I want to say a short vart on the parasha this week. Yungaman came to me this week, and he has, uh, can I know, he has uh, five kids already, and he, he, he had to earn a living, so he, if he got one of those degrees where, you know, you get a, one of these quick college degrees, and he went to law school, and he got a job at a law firm in Manhattan, and he said to me, he says, you know, from 20 to 35, I used to learn 15 hours a day or 13 hours a day, whatever it was, three sadaram. And he says now he's working 15 hours a day. From when he gets on the bus, Fartag is over there, gets to Manhattan, works all day, goes back home. He says, I come home. If I'm able to open up a safe for 15 minutes, he says, then I collapse. And he says, I'm so exhausted. A lot of times I'll miss a minion, I'll miss chakras, davening, betzibur, etc. And he said it's the most depressing, imaginable feeling going from Shifti Beves Hashem Kol to now to um, uh, basically, you know, working from morning to night, from dawn to dusk plus. And he's very depressed and he's, it's, it's, it's created like in the house, uh, you know, So I asked the guy, I said to him, um, you know, why did you have to take a job in Manhattan? Like, you know, is that, he says, look, you know, I have, you know, a bunch of kids. There's a lot of, the housing cost is very expensive. The food cost is very expensive. And now that I'm working, I have to pay Scharlimud and Shul memberships, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just expensive. You know, the cost of living for a family of seven is, I don't know, someplace between a hundred and two hundred thousand dollars if you live humbly. So I said, so why don't you, let's say, move to Wichita, Kansas? A house over there you can get for three hundred thousand dollars, and you put your kids in, you know, a modern day school or something where the the cost is much cheaper, the housing is cheaper, the food is cheaper, everything is cheaper. Like, what do you need the expense of the Northeast? So the guy looks at me like I, I fell on my head, and he says, "Like, what do you mean? I'm which you talking about? I have five kids. I want them all to be tire. I want my boys to be tire. I need yeshivas. I need the best yeshivas for my kids. I need the best shuls to daven for they should see. I want them to see neighbors, the best friends." So I said, "Aha! So you live in Lakewood and you run up all this expense? Well, shame shemayim. You're doing it because you want to have kids who are bnei tire." He said, "Of course." So I said, "So." Your entire work, then, it's all a shame shemayim because you could be living where your living expenses are half the amount. You didn't have to put in 15 hours. You could work eight hours and maybe learn a few more hours a day. And that, So you're doing this with shame shemayim. He said, yes, I'm doing all shame shemayim. So I said, let me share with you a vart, the vart on the parsha. It says in the parsha, If somebody borrows an axe from his friend, and it dies. In mace, right, it dies. But all of it, Ima Yishalim Yishalim, 
if he the, the owner comes along with the ox, it's Baal Avimai, then the Allah is La Yishali. He doesn't have to pay. So I said over the Svasemis brings his vartanets from the Rishon Tzadik. He said a fabulous, amazing. It's just like comes from I don't know where something. Some place really holy, some high holy mountain. He said the Rishon has said he touched a pasuk and tell him Achas Shaalti Hashem. So he says the Neshama is called Achas Yechida. That's in Russian Chazal. The, the, the Neshama is called Achas Yechida. Achas. So he says Achas my Neshama Shaalti. I borrowed, may it's Hashem. If you borrowed your neshama from Hashem, it's a loan to you. So then you're in a shoyal is chayiv in pshi, of course. He's chayiv in gneva vaveda. And he's chayiv even in oinsim. He says, that's where the passage continues. I borrowed my neshama from Hashem. What do I ask? Shifti beveis Hashem kol yamei chayi. I want to sit in your house. I want it to be ba'olav imei. I want it to be with the rabbi neshalem. Because Why? If you're with me, if it's Baal of Imai on this Shaila, on the right, on the, the Shaila of the Neshama, then I'm Pata from Ainus, I'm Pata Bigdeva Veda, I'm even Pata from Shaya. If you're walking hand in hand with the Rabbi Nishalam, if it's Shifti Beves Hashem, or if I'm with you, it's Baal of Imai, then you know what? You're going to make, you're going to miss a minion, you're going to miss a this. The whole reason you're doing it is because you wanted. To walk hand in hand with Rabbi Nishalom. You wanted your kids to grow up in a pristine atmosphere. You wanted them to go to the best yeshivas, to have the best chaverim, to daven in the best shoals. You makayim shifti beveis Hashem. That's the whole. That's why you're working there. So you know what? You get a you get a green card. You get a you get to get out of jail. You're pata from Ainus and Evaveda and even from Shia. That's what the Svasemis and the Rishon both said. They said. Look at your life. You, yes, it's true. There are going to be times you're going to miss this and you're going to miss that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's shifty bevei Hashem kol You're you're connected. You did all shem shabayim, and he smiled. So I hope I accomplished what I was supposed to. I think it goes on us too. Many times, you know, it's hard. There's tariag mitzvahs and a lot of drabanans too. And sometimes we're exhausted. You know, we 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 got up in the morning to daven, and then we learned, and then we went to work. And you come and you say, "This just I just couldn't do everything." And you know what? If you could say. I'm doing my life, I'm living my life with Shem Shemaim. Then you can be part of Ainus, you can be part of Nigneva Veda, even sometimes on a Pshia too. Let's go to our riddles of the week. Here's a Gewaldiger riddle, a Gewaldiger Shaila, and Shaykh to what we learned the last week. Pasig says, don't take Shaychad. Shaychad corrupts. You have a dying, even if he takes $10. He's an Egeabadavar, corrupts his judgment, and he becomes puzzled. So here's the question. Last week we spoke about the Gemara in Avaydazara, the Shalchanarach in Kufyu Tesnir a day that says that what? Eidechad is Neman Bisurim. And the Ikaradin, according to the Beis Yasef and the Ramah, if you have a store, right, and you're allowed to sell products, according to the base case, if you have to be a mochsi pakashras, according to the remark, as long as you're not a chashad, could be the other way around, I don't remember exactly. The bottom line is, I ask you, a guy's earning a living. He's a butcher, he's a baker, he's a candlestick maker, an afkamina, right? Isn't the biggest, the geese in the world, he's earning a living from his store, from selling kosher food? And he's selling it at 50% more. Could you imagine a bigger Negea Bedover than in a person's entire Parnassah? 
So if the Pasig says, Right, and therefore dying, even if he takes $10, is nifsel. How could there be a din of Eid Echad, Nemem Surim when there's a Negiya of Mamain? So it's true that we know that the Darach HaShulchan and others say that that's why today they will Masak in the Heksha, the Chulu, the Basil, etc. Badar Baratis, I mean, that's four, five hundred years old. The Shulchan Aruch says, Eid Echad, Nemem Surim and you could do without a Heksha. So even though today we're Machmir, but Mi'ikaradin, the Shulchan Aruch told us, How could there possibly be a Heta of Eid Echad, Nemem Surim when he's making a fortune, he's making his whole livelihood on it, when we have a Klal, Sheikh Yavar, and he pick him? That is riddle number one. And here is riddle number two. It says, "Kiyitein ishal riyayu chamoyer aishayer em ganev yiganev yishalim labaylov." The Gemara in Baba Kama Daftan Vav talks about a concept called the Prutad Rabbi Yosef. Now, what is that? That a shomer sachar, if you're being paid for your shmira, yichayiv in ganev aveda. So, so Rabbi Yosef said, every shomer aveda, the lachas you have to have a, be shomer in aveda till the bialim comes or until Mashiach comes, right? If you're a shomer in aveda, lachari you're a shomachinam. Rabbi Yosef says, no, no, no. You're really a shomer sachar. Why? Because a prutad Rabbi Yosef. Why, if an ani would come to the door and at that time you say, I'm sorry, I don't have to give you money. Why? Because I'm Isaac b'mitzvah. And Isaac b'mitzvah patam and a mitzvah. Therefore, it's I'm saving that pruta. And therefore, I become a Shemra Sachar. I benefit from the Shmira and the fact that at that moment, I don't have to give an ani, uh, any money. The question is, the Ramon Yeridea in Rashid of Gimel says that an ani gomer, a really poor guy who doesn't have, it could be that most young have these dinim, they don't have, a, and it's how much it is to be an ani gomer, even if you don't have for how many months, or is it for how many suddhis, but most young by the way, would fit into this. Doesn't have to give tzedakah to another ani. So lachaira, how could there be the din of prut Rabbi Yosef is an absolute din as nifsik in the Shulchan Aruch? There should be a caveat. Prut Rabbi Yosef, you become a shemasacha on the bottom. There should be a star. Except if you're an Araman, right? Or alternatively, is Somebody already gave his tzedakah at that point. Wouldn't have to give anymore. So there are two caveats. To the din of Shemesachar, Prutid Rav Yezid of Shemesachar, that the Shulchan Aruch does not mention. And the question is, why not? Those are our two riddles of the week. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's... Uh, Zero two three seven two zero three oh four. Let's go to our fabulous shear. I'm the CEO of TYE, right. I live in Kalstone, uh, Israel. So I, my my background is that I, I was involved with uh, with uh, with an organization dealing with Haredi kids at risk in Israel that uh, works with the welfare department and uh, I'm called Matan. It's the Shlomo Yaakov one. It's quite a famous uh, in the in the Haredi world. 
and uh, this was about 2008 or nine. And uh, I, I came across this problem with uh, young people with uh, porn addiction and kids at risk. And I was looking for resources. That's how I found Yako, who has just started Guard Your Eyes uh, from his uh, Mahatan and Beitar. And I reached out to him to see if he had any resources in Hebrew, and I saw what he was already doing, helping a lot of people. And uh, I started helping him on a volunteer basis. And after a couple of years, I joined them full-time. Okay. And, and, and Yaakov, could you please introduce yourself? Um, my name is Yaakov Nadel. I'm uh, from Detroit. I learned in Philly. I'm in Eretz Israel for the last 30-some years. I made children, grandchildren. Um, I was working in multimedia the first few years after my marriage, and I had, um, I had to have the Internet for my work. And I found it was a challenge. There weren't really filters back then. There wasn't a lot of uh, awareness of the dangers. And I had to develop methods for myself to stay strong. And Baruch Hashem, you know, I found some things that were working well for me. And I started sharing them with other Eden that I saw were struggling on various forums. And I saw that it really was giving them chizuk. So I made a little website called Guard Your Eyes with tips and dates and some stories that I gathered of people who were able to break free and some filtering advice and uh, some therapy advice. And that's how it all took off. People started writing to me that it's a very inspiring website. I started sending out daily physical emails. We created a forum. Um, and that's when things really, hundreds of people started coming from all over the world. That they found a place where they can share anonymously with other Yidin and that they're not alone. They're not crazy. There's so many other Yidin struggling with this. And Baruch Hashem, it grew and grew from there. We started phone conferences. We started a 90-day uh, chart that, um, based on scientific studies that say it takes 90 days to change an addictive pattern in your brain. So we set up like a 90-day chart where people could um, register and see their progress and have a specific goal to work towards. And um, about two years after starting, Yechazko joined me, and that's when... Uh, we really started to become professional. Until then, it was just sort of like a hobby out of my uh, Mahsan in Beitar, although I saw the potential and I knew that you know, something, something big was happening here, but I didn't have the professionalism and the know-how to be able to really take it to the next level. And that's when Sam sent Yechesko to me and the rest is history. We met Mendy about two months later. Um, a few months after meeting Yechesko, we went to Carmel to meet Mendy. He's a, uh, a web developer, project manager, a real genius in, you know, website development, and he helped us create the new BYE website about, uh, in 2010. It was about 12, 13 years ago, and uh, over the last four years, Yechesko and Mendy have been working behind the scenes on a program we call DY 2.0, which is a whole new level of professionalism based on the most cutting-edge science and tremendous amount of research, evidence-based, you know, behavioral methods for neuroscience, how to help people change their behaviors. And Baruch Hashem, you know, we're ready to launch this, and that's where we're holding today. We're about to bring this out to Kalaisel in a major way. We have um, a vision of bringing this to 30,000 people in the coming 12 months. Is that the same? Just launched the Hebrew website. We did it from A to Z. A lot of exciting things happening. So, so let me ask you a question. How big of a problem is this? Well, there's a study, uh, it was a Harvard study made by two from experts in the Orthodox community by the name of Rose Marin and Perinsky, and it shows that 58% of singles and 51% of married guys in the from community are looking at smuts at least once a month. So that's a pretty, you know, scary statistic. And if you remember, uh, in, two, in 2017, I was on the show together with Rev. Elio 
Rav Elia Lopian, you remember David? He was the Rashiva of Leib Aryeh back then. Right, I remember that. And he said there on the show that 80% of American Yeshiva Bachim in Yeshiva's circles have been nipsal somewhere along the lines of pornography. And he said he deals with this day in, day out. And Rav Chaim Ross, a big guy in Lakewood, he told us that one of the big chasen teachers in Lakewood told him that 70% of the boys that come to, to him for Adrocha before their wedding have already had their views warped by exposure to pornography and they have unhealthy expectations. So it's really a major, major issue that we're facing. It's the uh, scene of Mayasa Ben Veloyechta. It's just so easy to access today, so accessible, so anonymous. With Avram Khan, who's a big dime in New City, told us that 60 to 70% of the gitin that he deals with are related to this issue of as well. Rav Chaim Tzvi Center, um, the Rashiva of Adaris Atayra, told us that he has close to 200 Avreitim learning in his yeshiva in Koilo. He said, he said openly, he believes that many of them could very well be struggling. How could someone not be struggling with this, he said, you know, in our door? So, you know, it's a, it's a major, major problem. And um, I believe that Kodesh Baruch Hu has brought back the uh, Eitz Adas, before Messiah's time, to give us a chance to fix it one last time, because the internet is really the Eitz Adas Toivara. You know, it's the, it's the tree of all human knowledge, for good and for bad. Every single safer that's ever been published, every, you know, millions of hours of furim, even your your headline show is a good example of the good, but we don't have to talk about what else is there, the Eitz Adas Toivara. And the Kodesh Baruch is giving us a, a chance before Messiah to fix this Eitz Adas, you know, and start and learn how to use it right. And hopefully with this Tikkun, we'll be able to bring Messiah. This is the last challenge, you know, that we're facing with the Gedalim are telling us. See, you're American. I guess you're all American. But in Israel, is this a problem too, or is it only an American problem? Hesky, go ahead. I'll let you answer this one. Uh, is this a problem in Israel or only in America? Um, we don't find it such a difference in the, uh, in the numbers or the extent of the problem. It's a, it's a global problem. It's uh, the characteristics. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the type of technology people have access to is definitely one uh, variable that uh, is a little different in different communities. Not necessarily, not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily divided by continent. So the same communities are a little more guarded and a little more careful with their technology use. But, um, there's no, no community that is immune to this and, uh, it's a matter of, uh, percentages, uh, you know, differences in the, in the few, maybe 10, 20% differences in, depending on, on certain parameters. But it's definitely a very global and rampant problem, yeah. Now, is there any, besides you, and we'll get to what you do, but do you know of any Rabbanim or Rashishivists who, who, who deal with this, with, with boys, with Yungalite, or with Balabatim? Unfortunately, and so we, we don't have a monopoly on this problem. Our uniqueness, our unique uh, uh, positioning and what we, we, we offer is, is that we have a, an online platform that is global, that is easy, easily accessible, that is free, that is anonymous, and that people can access from anywhere in the world without anybody uh, knowing that they have the problem. And in that sense, in that, in Thailand, we don't have any competition, but we, we definitely um, will always look for partnerships with local rabbinic or therapists because uh, more, a lot of people who come to us uh, definitely need more than what we can offer online. I would say about 80% of the people that come to us, uh, what we have to offer is sufficient, and we try to do our best to really help people that they still need anything beyond what we have to the best of their ability. But no matter how good you are and how good we are, it's just me for people with still more serious problems, uh, 
an online program is not going to be enough. There's definitely going to be, have to be a professional human element to, to the help that they get. And so we don't see it as competition in any way. We see like the local abundant therapists as, uh, as a tremendous uh, partners and the resource that we try very hard to get uh, our members to, to go to them when they need them. Um, unfortunately, there's not enough, meaning uh, there's not enough. And also, unfortunately, people are very reluctant to go to, to live help. So we definitely do our best to encourage it and to find um, the best ways to, 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 to also to filter out the people who need that help right away so they don't waste their time on our platform if they really, from the start, can, you know, we can tell that their problem is much more serious and uh, our platform is not going to help them, which is about, it's hard to say exactly, but, you know, say about 10, 20% of the people that come to our website, we try to actually not encourage them to continue on our program, but rather um, to to refer them to someone local and to get their life help, mainly 12 steps, but therapy or, or stick to a route that knows how to handle this cases. Um, yeah, definitely not. We don't consider it either eight of those things competition, but we have a very unique uh, offering um, globally that no one else has. Yeah. Before I get to your offering, I have a few more questions for any who wants to respond. What damage does it do besides an Avera? Does it do damage? So the damage, first of all, is is uh is, is to the to the emotional and, and, and spiritual being of the of the individual. Uh what we find is that people um you know these are very uh, the people that come to us are very similar people and uh we know you know any of is is is, is causes uh, damage to the person and to 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 the alumnus and everything. But it's what what bothers me the most and what, what motivates me to do the best I can to to uh, get the help to, to to anybody who wants it and needs it is the fact that I see how much uh, emotional spiritual damage is caused by the by the self-loathing and and their low their loss of uh, of the self um, self uh, um, esteem that the people have when they fall into this and they see that they, they, the people come to us it's not uh, most of them it's not all of them it's not the first time they try to start. And uh, they try to do Silva, they try to do Kabbalah, they try to do <clears throat> all kinds of things, uh, uh, mikvah, and, and some of them even more, more uh, harder established than that. And, and it's, uh, when you see the people in there, they come in and they're discouraged and they carry the speaker with them. And they feel like they're amongst the shine and that they're, you know, they're the worst people on the party. They can imagine that, you know, that we really, like, you know, see tens of thousands of people in the same situation every year, and so, you know, there's no one else like them in their neighborhood and their school, and it probably is quite a few of them, but they don't know that. So the, the, the burden that they carry and the, and, the, and the pain that they carry is, is I would say, is the greatest damage. Um, obviously, um, it also hurts the relationships. You know, some of them are well being you know, in a, in a place of, uh, of emotional spiritual being, obviously they can be the, their best uh, at home, at work, with their kids, and uh, the, the impact is very widespread. Yeah, Jakob, you wanted to add something? No, I, I wanted to talk and say exactly what you're saying about the self-loathing and the, the feelings that Hashem doesn't look at me anymore because I'm so dirty, you know, right. and that causes a it's, a, it's a cycle of that feeds the addiction, actually, because since I feel I'm already lost anyway, you know, so then it feeds on it and it causes more and more damage to their spirituality. Um, and we're finding, you know, people who are on our website, you know, it, it changes their life. And, you know, a guy just wrote recently on our forum, he says, 
Um, and I'm quoting, he says here, it's been lots of emotional ups and downs. I'm approaching day 70 now, and I can testify that this has been a life-changing experience and one of the better life choices that I've made. I've developed closer bonds with my loved ones. I've come clean, literally, to my rub. I've acquired a special mentor and friend on the DY forum who has been indispensable throughout this journey. I'm actually starting to feel real love for my wife, not just to like her and live peacefully with her. I didn't realize how humbling it is truly faced the bare bones MS. Acquiring humility is a painful process that requires a person to be honest with themselves in their assessment of their strengths and weaknesses. But all in all, it's been amazing so far. I'm so filled with gratitude to the Chevron GYE. And thanks to your encouragement, I'm starting to veer away from medicating my, my painful feelings. Be kind to yourself. If you're reading this, do me a favor. Look in the mirror deep in your eyes and tell yourself over and over again that you are a good person who deserves to be happy. So it's it turns their life around and they're able to have a connection again with their wives, with their children, able to look them in the eyes and to feel the nachas, to feel the lisaneg alasem without having the, these noisy drums of lust banging in their ears, you know, and taking over their lives and not letting them appreciate the, the beautiful war, world that HaKadosh Baruch has made. That's beautiful. Maybe you have anything to add? Maybe, maybe you have your own perspective on this. About a year ago, I asked uh, our researcher to collect from all the scientific studies that talk about the damage that pornography does, and there's quite a bit in secular literature that they found that porn use could affect happiness level, could affect mental health. Of course, not for everybody, but for many people. It has, just like any anything that's addictive, smoking, drugs, or anything like that, is not osteopitea. There's no ister to, to smoke, besides for the Vinishmartim issue. But the fact that you're addicted to something and that's the way you deal with any painful feelings or stress or, you know, or, or problems in life, that and many people can cause mental health uh, damage. So even if uh, pornography would be mutter, um, would, it's still something that people want to stop, just like any other addiction. In addition to that, it also, for many people, or this is a much higher proportion, it causes big problems in their relationship. It changes their perspective on how they look at women if they're in the dating uh, dating process in Kedukhan. And if they're married, it's almost impossible to have good shalom dice when you're struggling with pornography. Okay, so what is the program? How does it work? Okay, so let's start. There's a lot to talk about, but uh, this is Rashi Pilkin. So a person comes to our website. They're totally anonymous. They don't have to tell us their name. They don't have to give us their real personal email address. They can make a new email address just for our website. Um, and as soon as they come, they have immediately they have access to a self-help program, which they can literally learn the tools that are going to help them in order to make significant progress with the struggle. And they'll also have the option, if they think that this is not for them and they want something more, that they're able to schedule a time to talk to us and to speak to a person on the phone that will help them analyze their situation, do some kind of assessment to figure out what their level of struggle is, and then recommend what's next. So we have mumchim for whether they need therapy or whether they need a support, the group support program where they actually meet real real people and work together on a program. Whatever whatever is out there is, is something, you know, any solutions that there are, we're aware of them, and we could help people find those solutions if they're beyond the scope of Guard Your Eyes. Besides for that, there's also a couple of other things that Guard Your Eyes is well known for. One of them is just a, just a forum where people can can be mechazic each other anonymously. Yaakov might know the numbers, how many people are on the forum, but it's, it's, uh, it's very, very big numbers of, of people and posts on and 
people when people read other people's success, it's mechazik them, and they can they see for straight. You know, Yechazka was talking before about how people feel very ashamed and about their struggle, and it's a type of shame that's toxic that can really eat up a person on the inside. That they feel that they're not, they're fake, they're double, they're two-faced, and they're not. They're not what people think they are. And they, you know, some people are like Noyach after the Mabel. They think they're the only person in the world that's struggling. From the that's looking at these kind of things, it's, they must be the only person that's struggling. And that's what eats them up so much. And it makes it, when they, when they feel that level of shame, it makes them it makes it also very hard to deal with it. Um, they're just frozen and stuck in, in that cycle of shame. Uh, ironically, when people are so ashamed, instead of trying to stop, they go to their most familiar medicine, which is more pornography. And then they feel more ashamed, and the cycle continues. When they can go to the forum and see other people in similar matches and everything is open, they could just... Tell them about the Flight to Freedom program, how we developed it and what it is. Yeah, so the Flight to Freedom program is the, the name of our science-based self-help program. And what we did is we took all the literature that's out there, all the tools that are known to work that have been studied for other addictions, even for smoking or for drugs or for gambling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we sifted through all the information. We took ideas that are shown to work that are 100% kosher, that there's no silence whatsoever. No one would say, hey, this kind of tool is a little bit, uh, you know, it's not. It's not for our alum. And we took all of it and created a beautiful program that can help people step by step, wherever they are, whichever. Some people are motivated. Some people are not. Some people are, you know, they're looking for ideas. Some people already know the ideas. They just, when they, when they have a fall, when they have a setback, they get so disappointed that they give up. So there's many different stages where people can be at. And regardless of where they're holding, this program could help them learn what could I to do and take the next step. So this is something it's it's a uh, it's a one of a kind. No one ever tried this in, in the in the Jewish world. There's nothing like it ever. I mean, until now. The only which, way which, 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 which leads me to a question. I just have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many times, you know, we've spoken about porn a number of times on the program, mm-hmm. and we get pushback from a Hanukkah. Oh, we're not supposed to talk about this. It's a secret. You're not allowed to be megalit. It's you know, the Kabbalah is the more we talk about it, the worse it gets. Have you had pushback from Rabbanim? Like, why do you? Like, how do you do you advertise it? Like, how do you bring it to people's attention? Or do you have you gotten pushback for it? There is an awareness already today. In the Gedalim in the film community that this has to be addressed. Um, I believe that a few weeks ago you had on your show Rep from Goldberg, I believe, and you yeah. were speaking about this new book that came out uh, that we helped uh, produce with Dr. Shlemy Zimmerman called From Boys to Men, which is really a game changer in the film community. I believe it's the first time that this issue is being addressed by mainstream, you know, Gedalim and it's published by Mosaic of Feldheim. Uh, Rav Aaron Feldman wrote a foreword to this to this book. I used to remember, I, the only reason I get this is I remember uh, before your time speaking to Rav Shach about this, uh, as a machanach speaking to Rav Shach, and he said, we don't speak to Bachram about Inyanesha Kedusha, it just creates you know, more awareness. I mean, this is before the internet. So it's like, it could be his issue is like, you know, these are buried things, why talk about it? And today, unfortunately, like you say, the numbers are any place between 50 and 80 percent. It's like it's the elephant in the room. You have to talk about it. But I'm just curious if you if you encounter that and if you do, how do you deal with it? 
Well, we don't really uh, have to deal much with that. I haven't experienced a lot of pushback in this area because Guard Your Eyes is made mainly as the hospital under the bridge for those who have already fallen off. I don't think there's anyone in the world that would say you guys are not doing good work because we're dealing with those who already admit they have a problem and they're looking for help. So no one's going to say that this is not um, you know, a good, a good place to go. However, when it comes to the prevention side of things, when it comes to a book like uh, From Boys to Men, that needs the scum of the Gedolim. You know, there's an awareness that we got to speak about this today, and every Makhanas and Rav has to be trained in how to deal with this problem, what to say, what age, how to say it, and how to help often that are struggling. Who funds your organization? So, you know, it's all of Klal that are behind this organization. Everything we offer is completely free of charge. And um, all the services are 100% anonymous. And over the last four years, we spent over a million dollars creating this new GY 2.0 platform so we can help 100,000 even hopefully in the coming few years, Vezus Hashem. And um, all the Rabbanim that we go to say, you know, guard your eyes is really Klal Yisrael's moisted. It's Klal Yisrael's response to this huge problem today. And we can only do this together as a people. So we do a, a campaign during Messer to Metuva, and once a year during Saivavim, we do a raffle to help raise funds to help thousands of Eden in this area. Saivavim is the time, you know, when Klal Yisrael leave Mitzrayim. That's what this is all about on a spiritual level. And I would I would just add on, and I would uh, I'd look for Raya for this, that if somebody who was Michel and he wants to have a kapara, one day to have a, one way to have a kapara is to prevent others from being Michel. So by donation, it's a kapara for any any chattis nurim that he may have had. So tell us about GY 2.0. What is what is this new platform, and what, what, how will it be different, or what are you excited about? Let me let me just start, and I'll give it over to Mendy to continue. GY 1.0 what we're calling uh, the beginning of DYE is, is what I started uh, 14 years ago or so. And it, like like I told the story in the beginning, you know, out of my matzan, it started with tips and stories and ATIS and some therapy tips and some filtering and some uh, daily physical emails I started sending out to a small group of people, which grew and grew. And then some people offered to do phone conferences, the 90-day the 90 day chart, the forums, chat rooms. It, it started helping a lot of people, but it was sort of a mishmash, a talent of many different tools and ATIS. People loved it because almost everyone was able to find something there that talked to them. But we understood that they'd be able to handle huge amounts of numbers that all the G'daylin were telling us, you know, that this is not enough. And there's probably like 300,000 from Yidin out there that need help and you guys need to be able to handle them. So we realized we need to have a much more robust and automated system to be able to process these kinds of numbers and to be able to direct people and give the, the ones that need the personal help to give them the personal help, direct them to higher levels of, uh, you know, live help like the 12-step program, but 70 or 80%, like it has still mentioned, are able to be able to get help through the automated program. So we started from scratch, and Mendy and Yechesko did tremendous amounts of research, like they told you, went through over 100 books and scientific papers, going through every single known, uh, you know, process in the, in, uh, of behavioral change, how to help people make changes to their their, uh, you know, habits and addictions. And the program that we developed, like Mendy was saying, it takes the user through a funnel, basically starting out with helping them get motivated, because not everybody is so motivated. You know, they might be curious. You know, so the beginning of the program helps the user build up his motivation, explaining to him, you know, why this is damaging his life and helping him decide on his own that this is something he wants to stop, you know, by filling out pros and cons and what he has from it and what he's losing from it. You know,
you know, at the second stage, we help them identify the triggers that are causing him to act out. And then at the third stage, we help him learn how to rewire his brain. You know, what are all the signs of, behind that? And then at the fourth stage, you know, we help him learn how to deal with setbacks, to deal with the turbulence, deal with his emotions. Because when a person is used to running to these behaviors, usually it's as like a medic. It's like medicating their, their feelings. They're not able to deal with their feelings and with the difficulties that they have in their life. So we have to train them how to learn how to feel again, you know, and, how, and that it's okay to feel pain and, uh, you know, ups and downs, emotional things, and not have to run away to the drug. And then, you know, we help them develop a more healthy lifestyle overall at the end, you know, that, that this could last for the long term. So it's based on all the most, you know, cutting-edge science and Tyra and it goes in a specific order from step one to the end and we're holding their hand the whole time each user you know is going to be assigned a coach that will follow up with them and make sure that they're on track and we have also scientific assessments built into the program so we can measure our success at every step of the way so we can constantly improve the program and make it better as we go along we're working with top um experts in the field of data mining and assessment, scientific assessments of pro, you know, before the program and after the program at different stages of the user's experience to have them fill out different assessments and things like that so we can have our finger on the pulse and constantly make the program better as we go along. So this is a work in progress, but it's it's really revolutionary. In I would say that even in the world, there's nothing like this out there, um, you know, for sure not in the from world, but even in the world at large, this is very revolutionary and very, very advanced. And uh, I think the Jewish people deserve the best. And do you want to share anything? No, let me let me just ask a few things about what you said. You said 300,000 from Yidin are have this problem. Where do you get that number? Well, it's an estimate based on the amount of people that are reaching out to us, you know. And we're assuming. So, how many people do? How many people do reach out to you? Like, what? I would say that approximately 50,000 Yidin have reached out to us since Guard Your Eyes launched. At any given time, we probably have about 10,000 active users, and this is without any advertising, very little advertising. You know, I just want to reach something that we got recently on the forum. A guy um, in, two, in 2020, a sponsor paid $10,000 for a full-page ad in the CMSF magazine. It was printed and distributed to 100,000 people at the MetLife Stadium. So a user by the name of Gishmak posted on the forum and he wrote, I want to thank you for your beautiful and life-saving organization. I happened to see Guard Your Eyes advertised in the CMSS booklet and Baruch Hashem it changed my life. My heart goes out for so many people that need this help but are not on VYE. We have to figure out a strategy how to get more people hooked on this site. So when we responded to him on the forum, he had sponsored by one of our donors and it brought us many members and he said, you should know, and I'm quoting, you should know that I just started to cry thinking about this host that this guy has. Please tell him I'm a regular Koilo Yungeman that learns Gisnak. I have a wife and kids. And if not for him, I probably wouldn't be from today, Rahman Islam. I can't go into detail, but I'm take, talking literally. So if you want to know if that ad paid off, you should just think of all the Torah mitzvahs that I and my children and the rest of my daughters will do. It's all in his post. This is an example of how important it is for us to get out there. And now that DY 2.0 is ready to launch, that's going to be our focus in the coming year, to really get this out there, to roll this out, to get 30,000 new members in the coming year, and we're determined to do that. Now, I see you have a portal for women, too. What is that about? Yeah, for, the struggle is, more, is much more common in men than women. Uh, when a woman, woman struggles, it's usually there's five reasons. It could be anxiety, stress, or other emotional reasons that are involved. Maybe her. Right. Problem. 
Right. So uh, women come to us. We have to serve them. Uh, we're not. That's not our main. Uh, not our main audience. So we have a special division for uh, for women. There's a big nechitza in between, of course. The women are helped only by women, and usually the help that we give to women is more hands-on. In other words, they'll speak to someone. Almost, it's not just like the 20 percent. It's much, you know, most most of them are encouraged to speak to this uh, representative and to talk out their problem and see what, um, in many cases, they might need therapy. And if it's just a very minor problem, at least they should know that it's a very minor problem. They shouldn't be too worried about it. Do you have any, um, like, range of ages? Well, um, Mendy, do we have, sign- when people sign up, we ask them their age or we stop doing that? See, we used to ask a lot of questions. No, no, we have a- We realized that we're losing people that way because people don't have patience. To- so we started asking less questions on sign up. But I think we do know that in general, our average user is approximately 20 to 30 years old, married. Um, we do get a lot of buffer as well, but less, not because buffers suffer from this less, but because for two reasons. First of all, they have less access to the internet, so they're less likely to come mm-hmm. onto an anonymous site, and if they do have internet, they should that not for good things, and they're hiding it. And number two, buffer have less to lose. So they could be struggling with this, but they don't feel it's destroying their life as much as someone who's married already, and in Koilo, mm-hmm. he realizes how this is damaging his relationship, and, you know, not letting him become who he wants to become. Yeah. I just want to mention, we also have some numbers that I could pull out of the have right in front of me, the age I don't, I don't have right in front of me right now. But uh, like Yakov said, it's it's, um, it's people like in their usually 21 is when they realize that they have a problem they're about to get that they they must get help because they're about to go into shaduchim. And then people that are in their 20s are often like the they're struggling with this the most. But the ages go from the people that contact us when they're 15 years old. Unfortunately, such guys really need to such young people really need to speak to a, a rebbe or a parent. Um, we're not able to help them virtually, but as they get a little older, 16, 17, 18, we're going to have a, we already have a program, our program is adapted for teens. It's a little lighter for teens, and we're soon going to launch a much larger program for teens that has animated videos and it's really ta- created specifically for them. But for that, if you're interested in stats, we have uh, 92% are males, 92.2, 7.8 are females, and 51.8 of our members 51.8% are married, and then the rest, uh, 40%, are single, and then there's a few small uh, percentages of people that are dating, divorced, uh, etc. And we get people 50, 60 years old signing up, you know, saying that they've been struggling with this their whole life and uh, are looking for help. I'd like to mention also that we have a division for spouses, because when a woman finds out that her husband is struggling with this, it takes them up terribly, and it's a, it's a wound that's very difficult to heal. And Baruch Hashem, we're able to guide them to mentors, they get a free consultation. They have their own WhatsApp groups and forums where they can share with each other. And it saved many, many marriages, Baruch Hashem. I've heard from personally people have come over to me and said, you should know that the spouse's uh, division of Gardurai saved my marriage. Baruch Hashem, uh, we're trying to address this issue in every angle we can. There's nowhere else for people to go, and we got to do this right. And we big Well, thank you, Rabbi Yaakov, Rabbi Cheskel, Rabbi Mendy, for having the courage to take on this sort of this hidden monster that few people have the courage to talk about, to discuss, and you're doing a tremendous, like, like your Haskama say, or Shmuel Kamenetsky, et cetera, all, basically all the good Gedolim of America. Um, what an incredibly important thing this is. Uh, on behalf of the call, we'd like to thank you. Thank you, David. Kultu, bye-bye. Thank you very much. Kultu.
Joining us from New York is Dr. Shlomi Zimmerman, a Talmud of Chaim. He's a licensed psychologist. He's written a book, From Boys to Men, with Haskamis from Rebaran Feldman, Rebellia Brudney, etc. Welcome, um, Dr. Zimmerman. Thank you so much for having me. So this is a very unusual book. Can you share with the listeners the gist of it? Sure. So the, the book is really split up into two parts. There's the, the first half is conversation points for parents to have with children about Inyana Kedusha, basically what happens, uh, physically development, marital intimacy, Taiva and Zera, health and safety. And so that makes up like the first portion of the book. And then the second portion of the book is really for how to navigate puberty, how to navigate the struggles that are inevitable when it comes to Inyana Kedusha, um, general hashkafa, development, um, parenting, how to deal with these issues when kids falls and has setbacks and how to know when to seek professional guidance. So this book, in my opinion, and I checked on Yitzhak just to double check, I don't think anybody ever wrote a book like this before. It's quite an astounding book. Why is it relevant now more than previous generations? Well, let me adjust that slightly, meaning there are a few books that were written in this area of talking to children or not. Some of them were more in the, for the modern world. Uh, some were pamphlets more written for Abayim. Um, the, the value add, I think, for this book is that we really spent a lot of time trying to power the parents to be the ones to educate this uh, because, A, the parents are the closest people to the children. They could target it at the most age and developmentally appropriate point in life. And also, I think it's you know, can be inappropriate for a Rebbe to get involved in some of these details, and the Rebbe's there only for one year. So this is one value added in terms of the parents. And I think, but really, there was enough out there that I didn't really need to write it for this. The second half of what to do when the Bachram struggle, how to prevent them from struggling, and how to intervene, there's a lot of stuff out there that really uh, wasn't so clinically sound and, and potentially not even so ashkafically sound. And, you know, guard your eyes and myself, we, we felt that that's where there was a tremendous need for such a book. We see thousands and thousands of Bachram struggling uh, at all levels with this. And maybe most importantly, this is one of the few things that if people get the right education and are emboldened to show up and be there for children, we could prevent so much unnecessary pain and suffering and issues uh, if, we, if we do this right. Do you think it's more relevant now than prior generations? So everybody agrees that it's more relevant now, um, meaning because with the internet and the just the lack of tzniyas, you know, what today, what uh, somebody could see on the computer in 15 minutes, you know, they say, you know, Achashverosh didn't see in his whole life. There, there's no comparison to what a kid growing up in earlier generations was dealing with versus now, but people like to isolate this as, okay, now with the internet, like it's a total concession. Whereas I think, you know, even a few weeks ago, you had people on the program talking about to talk or not to talk, and you brought down Marmakonis where people were learning Nida and Kedushin and learning Chumash Rashi, people were struggling with Inyoni Kedusha from the beginning of time. And it is something that I don't know if we pivoted completely now or people were getting sort of this education by learning Chumash and Mishnayis and Gemaris more openly, um, or it was more Mesoyah Avlabain and Aim Labas. But there, there seems to be a, a fall off at some point where we stopped doing this and Yes, we got slammed way before the internet already. Revolba and others described. Revolba writes, that the vast majority of youth in 1982, before the internet, were struggling with these inyanim and were falling into atzvus and yish and all these problems. And the internet just, you know, made that an exponentially greater problem. Now, on, on a, what did you experience that? 
um, that instigated that you would write the book? So there, there are a few things. So like I said, there were a number of things out there in terms of talking to children, which I thought were decent enough. I had made some uh, comments and corrections to some of them and talked to Gedolim about some of them. But the real issues were that some of the things coming out in terms of how to intervene and how to really deal with the Bacham once they're already hitting bar mitzvah and struggling, uh, I found to be very problematic. And I found that there was a huge absence just in clarity, uh, both in terms of from a hashkafic perspective and a psychological perspective of what's a healthy approach to dealing with this and what, what could we really do uh, to guide uh, parents and Rabbonin who are, you know, at the front lines of, of dealing with this. And I think, you know, that's where when Guard Your Eyes said, hey, we want to do something more, I said, okay, this is a, an enormous project. And I checked in with Gedolim to make sure uh, this was appropriate and, and with, you know, tremendous, uh, you know, bracha and hashgacha and guidance and involvement, intense, intense involvement on the Gedolim. We worked on this for years to get it right, thousands and thousands and thousands of edits to make sure this was written properly and re- going to be received properly. So g- give us an example, you know, any good Magachir knows, any good Rashiva knows, that if you just say the Teretz, people fall asleep. If there's a Kasha and then there's a Teretz, then people understand the Teretz. What was being done when you say wrong, that now you say, hey, I looked at it, I said, that's wrong, we have to fix that, and we did it this way. Give us an example or two. So some of the, the, the you know, the, the most difficult things were, were people who were really browbeating the kids, learning some very intense sarim and, and talking negatively, uh, making them be mitzayer, a horrible like, lynching. In other words, the Meshach, the, the uh, Reishis Chachmu says Chachmu. they're going to they're boil you in, in olive oil for, they, they, for, for 30 days in a row. You didn't think that was helpful. Right. So we, we see, so, so one of the biggest issues that we see psychologically something called pathological shame, where people feel I'm totally unworthy, I'm out, I'm a fraud, I'm not a real benter. We see an enormous amount of that. And unfortunately, there were, on, the, on the worst cases, there were you know, people who meant well trying to get them to stop this isser and were feeding into the unhealthiness. And even the really people who were using more positive approaches, but they were very busy with this. Uh, they would make special learning stars in, you know, programs to, okay, tell me about your successes. We'll count each success. Uh, maybe I'll even give you uh, money for that. It was making an ASIC out of it, making this something very unique, very different than any other topic that they deal with, whether it's Bittal Taira or Lashon Hara or Kas or Hil Hashem. This became an outside thing that had much bigger weight and really we're trying to put this under the tchum of the entire Tyran Shulchan Aruch and the, this issue in particular the more you're involved with it, the more busy you are with it. So Kimat all the Gedolim in the last 50 years and goes across from Litvish to Hasidish talked about the main thing being Hesach and how can you help somebody who's inundated from the outside but still be Mesiyach Das, just turn away from this, not be busy with this and not feel, feel horribly and even if you're struggling to be able to move on I felt that that was an essential piece that we really needed to give people to understand the danger that many of the interventions that they were trying could actually inadvertently make it worse because you're making them more busy and more negative feelings, which actually fuels more acting out behavior. And to give them some tools of, okay, okay I say, here are some things that don't fall into that trap that you can provide. So, so a few takeaways. One is enough with, enough with the shaming and the boiling in oil. Let's talk about it in a more positive way and not obsess about it, but make it part of, you know, a friend of, just part of, it's, it's part of life's shyness, challenges, etc. A friend of mine went into the Beis Yisrael, and he was a bacher, and he started talking to the Beis Yisrael, but he was nichshel in Varim Shebek Kedusha, and it was before Rosh Hashanah. So Beis Yisrael looked at him, waved his hand, he said, he said it in Yiddish, I'll say it in English, he said, enough with this, let's talk about Uvachayin Tein Kavit. Right, but the problem is that when this is in the shadows, when it's the unspeakable, when every kid realizes no adult can talk to me about this, where
where it's a hidden topic, it's almost impossible to not fall into terrible shame and guilt because this is the one thing that's a total taboo. So any kid who might be struggling with their self-concept or anything going on in their life and then stumbles into this issue, and even he might even read, he might, he might read a Kitzvah let alone anything else, he'll think, oh my gosh, it's only me. Only I have these concerns. Only if I've seen these things, I'm terrible, I'm bad. And he will get the implicit message. There's nobody to turn to. You can't talk to anybody about this. So the, they end up more than any other there. I don't have people coming to my practice ever because they, they spoke Russian horror and they read what the Chafetz Chaim writes about it. Or they spoke during Tazar Shashats and said, I can't bear that, right? That yet to happen. But these issues, I can have a practice dedicated just to this because it's happening in your mind and in private. So it's the most likely to end up with all sorts of pathological thoughts and feelings on it. And so unless we're going to bring it to them and guide them and give us our values and our hadrach on how to deal with this, they're going to end up suffering tremendously. And that's just they know you live internally. And then we have all the huge risks to what happens because of curiosity and on lack of education that they act out with others and they practice and, and they go underground with this. You know, the, the, the issues are, are endless. So give us a third example. You said shaming is one, obsession is the second mistake people have made in the past that you went in a different direction. Give us one more. So, again, even the, 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 the incentivizing for this, talking about, you know, being busy with how many times did I pass, how many times did I fail. So you end up making inadvertently an entire focus on this rather than what many of the examples say. Let's try to get you to forget from this. How do we give you a the most positive, good life, and that your head is involved in the most productive things. And when you struggle, you struggle, but you redirect yourself into positivity. Positivity in, in learning, positivity in hobbies, positivity with friends, a good social life, exercise. Give them the sense that this is not what their life is about. Life is much, much broader. This is a difficult struggle that everybody has, you know, especially during these times that we live outside, and especially for a buck who doesn't even have any sort of way of dealing with it, you know, until, until much later in life. And helping them normalize it, feel that their drives are normal, their thoughts are normal. They are totally worthy and acceptable that this fakert struggling with this makes you tremendous hero and chashev and it's like Yosef Atzadik rather than feeling badly about yourself. We have to put this into the entire rubric of positive hashkafas ha-toyre and achayim and show them that the toyre has an unbelievable treasure of information on, on this topic. It's not something that's bad and taboo. It's fakert, it's kadosh v'tahar, your kadosh v'tahar and the struggle is Hashem made for you, and Hashem made the internet, and Hashem made, you know, all the, all the Tumadik Hazachim, but it's there for you to grow from. So rather than feeling all these terrible stuff, they should try to uplift and bring Kedusha into these dark spaces. Given that historically there's been a lot about, like you say, just push it under the carpet, um, did you get any pushback from any of the Rabbanim, people you spoke to, tried to ban it or anything like that? So the short answer is yes, meaning it took two years just to get the Gedolim to put their askam on it. That's both in terms of working through every prat and even including my commas. Yeah, that's how detailed the corrections were. And there were only a few Gedolim who were willing to even touch this. Many said, like, oh, listen, it's, it's a, might be a good idea, but this is too heavy to handle. And Baruch Hashem, we got Rav Aaron Feldman, Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, Rav Shalom Kamenetsky, and Rav Yabrudni were really willing to take the mantle and say, we need to do something. And 
this has to happen, uh, but it took a tremendous amount there. I still hear, rather than so much forcefully in public, there were some people say there was a different sheet, though. This wasn't the Armisera. Um, some, you know, there were some issues that came up that people, they, the kids are so desperate for any education that some children were buying it in some of the stores, so we had to inform the stores, you know, only sell it to adults. But the overwhelming majority, 99% of the feedback has been unbelievably positive in terms of parents coming largely and saying, wow, the conversations went much easier. Then the, an amazing thing happened. Not only did this conversation went well, but my kid told me about being bullied a week or two later or an, about, an abuse prevention happened because of it. That, those two I knew would happen because I've been dealing with that for many years in my practice. Maybe the biggest skittish to me is I have countless people, you know, 20 to 50 years old, come to me and say, I was reading this almost through the lenses of my Bach herself, and it's so healing for me. I wish I had this. I've had many even people who are mamish addicts come to me and say, if I would have heard probably four or five lines from your book, I think the entire trajectory of my life would have been different. Um, you know, so the, the wow. and it's been around the world. And that's what people take the time. Very few people email authors. You know, it's like I'm getting emails from, you know, Australia, England, every state. And, you know, pe this is something that has been underground that we all know about this. We talk a whole day about smartphones and technology and we have a CFIS. And, you know, we, aside for filtering or banning, we do nothing to educate. We basically say, yes, this is the hardest struggle of a life for a bucker and this is the worst generation to ever struggle in it. I'll see you at the chuppah. I'll walk you down. <laughs> we, we've abdicated our responsibility entirely and we have so much to offer, so much richness. Listen, I, I'm certainly sympathetic. You know, a, a lot of problems people deal with, it's called the mushroom theory. Um, put it under the rug, close the lights, and close your hand, you know, shut your hands and pray for the best, right? And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it usually doesn't work. Yeah, and, and we've seen that that was the, one of the ways that this really helped get this done. I was involved many years ago in abuse prevention, bringing Debbie Fox's Safety Kid program to the New York area and spreading that. And it was the same thing. First, they said parents are not going to be able to do it. We can't handle this. And Chazdeh Hashem, we were able to show that if we, if we get it right and we provide the tools and we provide the education and we show them that, that the Rabbonim and the Gedolim are behind it, we'll get them to do it. And we were able to educate hundreds of thousands of children that way, and we've prevented so much pain and suffering. So that was one of the things I was able to say to the Gedolim, like, we have some proof that if we do it right, and we give parents and the Rabbonim and the right messages and tools, we could really make a mapecha here. And this is what always surprises me, is like, you know, when, when, when we, I would imagine, look, you're a psychologist, you deal with this, most kids who've uh, been molested, they had no idea what was happening to them. How, how could they possibly know? So it's imagine telling you, not telling your children that running in the street is dangerous or touching a fire is dangerous or playing with an outlet is dangerous. They would never know. And there would be tragedies. And once you tell your kid growing in the, running in the street is dangerous and touching an outlet or touching, I mean, kids don't touch outlets and they don't touch fire and they don't run in the street. And yet when it's come to this very dangerous area, we don't tell our kids anything. And then God forbid they run in the street and that bad person comes over or, you know, and, 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 and it, they didn't know they weren't supposed to run in the street. All it took was a little education. A hundred percent. And, you know, that is certainly the case for both abuse prevention and for a lot of these issues. But what, what happens is that people say, oh, it's because of the Internet or pornography or because of the, you know, few sick molesters with Kedusha issues. I, I, I've lectured to thousands of Mechansim at this point and, and Balabatim. You ask people, forget pre-Internet, pre-any of this, not abuse. How many of you would have wished that you had a different experience 
before you hit puberty and through those years, if somebody would have proactively taught you what's going to happen, what's going to change in your body, what are the challenges you're going to face, how do you face them, that they're here for you, that an adult would show up. And, and there's so much just unnecessary pain and issues and struggles and psychological then before we even get to abuse or pornography or addiction, just the internal struggles and the Beinodom of Haveris struggles and all the, the this, this stuff that is, like you're saying, so preventable if we get some clear-cut messages. And we, more than the pushing of the words, because people get stuck, how open, not open, it's about showing up, showing up that here, we're here as parents, we're here as Rebbe, and we're here as somebody to guide you. It's not taboo. You don't have to deal with this alone. This is normal. Everybody deals with it. You're, you're, you're with Sibor, you're with us. We're going to guide you through. Yeah. I think when you say if, if people could have heard, I mean, personally, when I found out about the, the birds and the bees from some, you know, some overly, you know, curious kid when, in Shul on that when I was like 11 years old, it's not the way we should find out about these things. It's just, you, you know. It's a terrible way to find out because it's not people get stuck on the information. It's not whether the information is correct or not. It's when you find out about it in that way, you find out about it in something, oh, something sick, something perverse. Something yeah. And, it's, it, when you, and when you're 11 years old and you hear these things, you think, wow, like, your parents must be crazy, that the world is, is a perverted and sick place, whereas if it's given over that there's a Yiddish Mahalach and it's with Kedusha and it's the biggest mitzvah that a person could do, it's the first mitzvah given to the world is, is to procreate, etc., etc., it, it just establishes the first image, and you know it's very hard to replace the first image. Exactly. That, that's what many of the, them said that, you know, once you're, you know, it's like writing on, you know, the, the Gemara uses the Lushen of writing on clean paper versus writing on paper yeah. that's been written on already. Tabula Rosa. Yeah. So when, our, when we're the first ones to A, imply the information, but also the values and the sense that this is something, I'm safe, you're safe, you could hear about this and you can come back, then children are likely, even if they hear about it somewhere else, they come back, mommy, is that true? Daddy, is that true? Was that wrong? What about it? Versus when they only hear about it like, like you, and the vast majority of people that I've ever encountered have heard about it was during those early years, before they even got to Bar Mitzvah, because the, that, that's what's also hard for people. Why are you telling them so early? Because exposure and curiosity happen before puberty. If they usually happen somewhere between 9 and 11 years old. Even the Machanenu, and that was, like you said, well before the internet. So we have to be proactive, and if you hear it in that way, then the rest of the information, you have a way to absorb it and to deal with it, versus, oh, nobody else could talk to me about it, only this curious kid, only that other kid in my class, in camp, on the bus, on the street, from the internet. Then you're processing that all alone by yourself and have to make heads or tails of it and the likelihood that you're going to make some very very big mistakes about yourself about the whole topic is a is a hundred percent it's a hundred percent yeah so here's a question your book right from boys to men is it for yeshivas or is it for parents the the the, the ultimate goal that i would like is for parents to educate their children but it is also tremendous for any Rebbe Mechanech who deals with children from you know, middle school and up for sure to know and work, understand how children develop, what are the signs, what are the ways, what's the information. So we actually, you know, so we're sort of selling it for the parents to ultimately do it. And also I don't think parents are going to fully be on board unless they hear from the Rabbeim, from the Moises, from the Gedolim, that this is the right thing to do, an important thing to do, which is what, you know, so many of the on the book are for. But what we're doing is because we need the leadership, so we, we Baruch Hashem, we have sponsorship for Rabbeim and Mechanchem, any Rav, any Rebbe, any Moised who wants it, we're sending them the book free with free shipping, they just have to fill out a simple form, give us, you know, the name, the number of books for their Moisit, and we're giving it because we want the Rabbeim and the Rabbonim to know what this is, to be equipped, 
and then to encourage the Tibur to, to get on board with us. Can I add on my own um, my own feeling? I believe that the Stakli Barai Subarialma, there's no topic, no topic that the Torah doesn't have a way to be Mechanachas on, that the Torah doesn't have a way to teach it, that the Torah doesn't have a way to be Machnas and Kedusha. There's nothing Klal Yisrael has to be afraid of. We have the Kalim, we just have to do it in the right way. A thousand percent, and that we see there, there you know, not every person, you don't have to go to special Svarim to deal with this topic. From Boratius, this comes up. You know, that's what's a bit strange for me is that, you know, in some ways I was on the defensive for so long. When I asked people, is a bacher knowing, if we're so mixed that they don't know how to teach Chumash Rashi. Let's say the times when children actually knew how to teach Chumash Rashi, forget anything else, would they be less tamimistic? Is there, is, you know, I, I would have asked a few of them, is ignorance, innocence in the Torah? Chalila, somebody who knows these aspects of the Torah, it's pure and Tahar and Kaddish in every which way. So it's just a matter of how do we deliver that. And in Baruch Hashem, that's what we work so hard in tandem with the Gedolim to do. And, you know, it says the, 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 the Hanoich is the son of, of uh, Sheis, right? Well, I'm not sure if I got my... It's, it's, either, it's the grandson of Nayach. Yeah. But, so the question is, the Nalta is the question, why is the Enikol called Hanoich? Why didn't Nayach name one of his kids Hanoich? And the answer that I've heard, and which I think was, is that how could Adam bring up adolescents, puberty, teenagers when he was born as an adult? How could he? How could he share the experience if he if he had no if he never had that experience, he never had that education? So it was only his son who was born and went through that process could name a child Chalach, right? right? So, so so the only way these children will ever ever learn, the only way that they can learn in the Yiddish way, is that if somebody comes along who's an expert in it, who's gone through the sugya, who struggled through it, who worked through it, who spent years, he could actually be mechanech them and how to do it. But to assume they could do it on their own is just it's it's ludicrous. Absolutely, absolutely. Swami, thank you very much. I'm sure this is going to be a tremendous bestseller. You had the courage to tackle an elephant in the room that everybody was afraid of and to do it in the most, in the eifin of Kedusha and Tahara and easily understandable. Chelech Laraisa. Thank you so much. And again, if anybody wants, the Guard Your Eyesight has an access to buy the book. And if you want to put it on the show notes, uh, you know, we, we, we can make this available, especially for the link for the Rabbein. And it's uh, being sold hopefully in bookstores, but some bookstores will not display it. So you have to ask for it just for the Robin to know. Thank you so much. Thank you. Call to bye-bye. Joining us from Yerushalayim is Remendel Kessin. He's considered one of the few experts in the world on Ramchal. He has over 600 shiurim on Ramchal and Torah anytime, etc. He's a Talmud and a Musmach of Rashi Bahagra Moshe Feinstein. Welcome, Remendel. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us, Shmir Sinayim, uh, what does Ramchal write about it? Well, Shmir Sinayim, I mean, obviously it's understood basically that, you know, you're not supposed to look at what is forbidden. But the truth is, it has a much deeper meaning, and I'd like to mention that uh, briefly to give a person an acquaintance of what the union is of Shmir Sinayim and so on. Uh, the first thing, obviously, is the uh, the Torah derivative of this. You know, we say in Kriyishma, uh, you should not go after, you know, your heart, which means your desires, and you should not go after your eyes. That you pursue. So there you are. The Torah explicitly states that you have to have Shmir Zanayim, you see. Now, there are different ideas connected with that, and I'd like to offer three. Three very important ideas of why Shmir Zanayim is so critical. The first idea, we can actually can organize this in three different areas. What do you see when you look? 
who sees it? Is it you or something else? And what are the consequences of the sight? Uh, so I would organize it that way. So to look at these three ideas, the first thing, when you look at something, many times it creates jealousy. So therefore what the Rabbanishim says is, listen, I don't want you to be jealous. Because when you look at something, right, that something has, somebody has, you don't have it. Or even if you have it, he's got a better form of it, whatever, you're going to get jealous. So the question that you can ask yourself, so therefore you prevent yourself from becoming jealous, which is obviously all over, because everybody has different, uh, you know, things about uh, different objects and so on, you see. But to prevent that, be careful of what you see. So that's the first major motive that the Torah provides not to see or to be careful of what you see. You right. see, if you don't see something, then what's there to compare to? So the origin of all of this, basically, jealousy, that is, is to see, to look around, and so on. Now, but the real idea of jealousy isn't just to be jealous. The real idea is to prevent this, to be maharer after your midas, after the midas, I should say, of the Rebbe The Rebbe does not want you to judge him. And one of the ways is when we see somebody have something and we're jealous, what are we really doing? We're really saying to ourselves, whether it be conscious or unconscious, how come I don't have that? Why does he have it? And so on. Why don't I deserve this? So ultimately what that means is we're Mahari after the midis of the Rabbanishladim. Why didn't he give it to me? What is the problem that the Rabbanishladim has? Well, you're judging God. You see, second idea of Shemir Sanayim is to prevent what's called an ayin hara, an evil eye. Now, what's interesting is most people don't know what an evil eye is, except that, you know, if somebody questions, you know, what's happening to you, let's say something very good, that he gives you an evil eye in a certain sense. That he says, well, why do you deserve it? Now, we, we know an iron horror can destroy you, can kill you. In fact, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, and I think it's in Bob Matthias, says that I think the overwhelming majority of people who are in, buried in the cemetery died because of iron horror. I don't want to get into that. What does that mean? But let me tell you what an iron horror really is. An iron horror doesn't have power to harm you. But here's what it does. Because of the lofty position of every Jewish neshama, we don't realize how choshev we are in Shemayim. And when you look at somebody and you say to yourself, it's not why don't I have it, which is jealousy. Why does he have it? You see, why? He doesn't deserve it. So what happens is that invokes a judicial proceeding in Shemayim. Immediately you are judged. The third idea, which is very interesting, and in the end it's the most important of all, it's to prevent kaiva. Because when you see something automatically, especially in the area of, of promiscuity and so on, lust, right? Automatically, if you're looking at the wrong thing, then you will corrupt your neshama. And you look at something, that sight is the major vehicle for the neshama to see the world. That's what happens. Because the neshama, the five parts of the neshama, is connected to the, uh, to the different parts of uh, the, the body and so on. The nephesh is in the, in the, the, nephesh is in the liver, and the, the heart is the ruach, the neshama is in the brain, the part of the neshama, then you have the chayim, the chida, whatever, but you're connected to your body physically and in a certain way and so on. When you look at something automatically, if you're looking at something that is also, then that thing has what's called Zayama and that will enter your eyes and contaminate your Nishama. Uh, that's what happens. That's the problem. And once you contaminate that, 
then you have now removed the purity of the neshama. How? Because what happens is the zoyma now encircles or envelops the neshama. It cannot contaminate the neshama, but what it can do is encircle the neshama and prevent the neshama from connected to the insight. See, that's how it does its damage. The zoyma cannot connect to the neshama too high, but what it can do is surround the neshama and therefore block it from the insight. And that removes ruchnius and allows the zoyma of the sultan to have control. And, uh, you know, what we see, therefore, is very interesting. Moshe Rabbeinu, it's funny, at the end of the Torah, the Torah says that his eyes were not dimmed, right? It doesn't say anything else. What does that mean? That means Moshe Rabbeinu, his eyes were not dimmed because there was no Zoyama that encircled his neshama. He never saw anything that would contaminate his neshama, which was incredible. You see, that's why his eyes never become damaged. That's what it's really referring to. Or, for instance, something else. His mask over his face. What was it you couldn't look at? Why couldn't you look at his face? Well, in a certain sense, you could, but you could not look at his eyes because from his eyes, the neshama would radiate out of his eyes. You could not look at that type of neshama. It was astounding. You see, that's really what the mask covered. So we're talking here about Shmir Sinayim. That's really what it is. So the greatest damage of Shmir Sinayim is the Zoyama that envelops your neshama. And as a result of that, you have major problems because, it, like I say, it envelops it and therefore you're not connected. It's a barrier to being connected to the, to the, the Kedusha or the Rabbanishtam himself. That's why the eyes are so important. Be careful. Watch it. Remendel, this is really wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Result of the week. So the first one was about Yisro. How did he do Rismila? And you mentioned the whole uh, the whole the uh, that they had about the Mila without Vila to I'm sorry, girls without Mila for someone who does not uh, cannot do Mila unless he has a letter from the doctor. So the first of all, the the whole idea of Sakana Fashet, they saw I don't remember why I saw this, but this is years ago. That Sakanas Nefashet, a, a ptur of Sakanas Nefashet is a ptur that Jews have. So a Jew who Bnei Israel in the Midbar, so they had the ptur. But Yisro was not yet a Jew, so he does not have the chalel al of Shabbat Tzarbev. The whole idea of a mission pikuach nefesh is he should be uh, over on the terre. So that was the time to a Jew, and Yisro was not a, a Jew, so he didn't have this uh, exemption. He didn't have this ptur. So the only way to become Jews was to do mila. Now, there's some stuff that says that outside of the of the Anana covered, there was Ruach Tzfonis because the world cannot be in time without Ruach Tzfonis. And also that for Bnei Levi, the Ruach Tzfonis somehow penetrated the 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 Ananim. So the idea is that there was Ruach Tzfonis and Yisro coming from the outside, he was able to do a bris mila without danger himself. And also the Oznayim Aserer of Sarotkin, uh, he mentions, they think it's the same Pulmus and Reb Chaim Oizer, that they were trying to answer this Rav, who wrote about uh, doing Geot uh, Atayot Mila, and they say that uh, the whole idea of Oynes Rechmana Patre is that if someone has an Oynes, so he's he's in something, he has some kind of obligation, and he's Neras and he cannot do it, so the Terah is, is, is Potering. So they, they have this... Uh, Pilpulish type of svara that is only if you have a a chiyuv and then you could call it the oynes. The oynes is when you have to do it and you cannot do it. So a Jew, uh, uh, kids that were born in the desert, they were Jewish. They were obligated in doing uh, bris mila. So now you could come and done the oynes of smarafata. They can't do it. But uh, someone who's coming to convert, he has no chiyuv of doing a bris mila. He could just stay uh, a goy. He wants to become Jewish. 
So we cannot call that a chiv that then could come and say, That was about the first question. The second question about the kifin and how they could know the Muslim on his back. So first of all, I would think it's just practically how would they now dug up, dig up all the based on And maybe it was just wasn't uh, practical. Second of all, maybe I couldn't find a source for it, but we know that uh, based on this was built agave keeping, agave keeping, but we don't know that this was done in the Baisrisha. Maybe Baisrisha it wasn't, only Baisheni. After they, they built this for the second time, this is keeping agave keeping, keeping, no idea if it's true. Now, the Gris brings a Rambam that says that Makam Mizbech was Mechuven Beyoisel. It needs to be very precise. And he understands that he is something that the human being cannot be Mesamtan. So even if they could see the Makam, that there is Kifin and there's no Kifin, and know that that's the Makam Mizbech, but the exact centimeter where it needs to be, that the human being cannot do, and they needed a, a Navi for that, and that's why we needed a Navi. And Maras uh, Chayus, I think, he brings uh, this idea that Nebuzaradan and also the rest of Sinai Israel in that time, like after the destruction of the Second Temple, when the Romaim, they were Choshev Harabais, they cleared the whole thing. So also Nebuzaradan and Sinai Israel, they dug up the whole area, so then when Bnei Israel returned, they were not able to find the exact place where there's keeping, where there's no keeping. Also, the places that they were keeping, it was dug up, and now they didn't have a way to find it. Anyway, Yishar Koch, and thank you very much for your podcast. First question about the rock point is not blowing. Um, I think the Gemara is Mavur. That it was because they were Nizufim, Kalites, and Abraham Shana. So Abraham Shana is not literally all 40 years in the Mizra. It means from the time of the Chet and Meraglim when they were Kabul and Nizifa. The Mandamara and then Mar and Zvachal, all these three came to Israel. But even Rashi that goes with the Mandamara, used to say Machaman, Rashi identifies it as Machaki and Kippurim. That was all the first year of them going out of China. Before the Mites and Meraglim, the Rukh Spanish was still blown, and that year they would sell. Mowing their children. In fact, they did make a common Pesach that year. That was the year of Pesach Shani. Was that the coming year? So you see that they sell the Ruach Finest, and it was only all the subsequent years that they didn't bring the carbon Pesach to uh, Tikkuna, like I said, but they were missing a lot of people more and more as the years went on. Besides um, that, I would just put out there that maybe Yisroi as a Ben Midian, when he came from the name Midian, from the name Ketura, um, maybe he already had a brisk meal and all he would require is a pasta damn brisk. He might not need the brisk meal. Uh, as far as the second question that the Bianca has to bring down from the rap or from the Vizitavit, it's based on a bunch of Hanachas. I believe there are cults among some of them. Um, the idea that you absolutely can't have any halal among the needs, I'm hoping it only has to be the poor because the bottom, it would be foolhardy to try to address the question by arguing on the premise of the question. I would rather just take a stab at um, something that may be outside of the question, so to speak, and that is that it's possible. I don't have any sources for the Baez Rishon, but we do have a Nevoa by the Baez Cheney.
were going to go back to the Bayes Canyon, they weren't sure if they would actually find everything intact. And it could be that all the archaeological excavations they would do would not necessarily yield them the exact desired results of finding, keeping everywhere else other than the exact spot of the Mizbah Adama. So for that, either, again, either they actually required an Avi, which was or Akapanam, they thought they might require an Avi in case they didn't find everything intact. And it could be that the they would have to be charged to the guy and played around with it also. And even if they would find everything the way they expected it, that, that would be su- uh, sufficient to rely on the death of Muslim and Maybe it was um, played, tampered with. 